go ahead and do a little clap. Patrick. Is that to know when to hit it? That's the, that's the, to, we're not supposed to talk about the sound at the beginning of the podcast. I've been chastised for that oh, then <laughs> from my mother. Edit this out. <laughs> I don't edit. No, you well, clap your hands. Being... If people wonder like why people clap their hands at the beginning or why there's a little clapper, it's so that you have an easy marker when yeah. to, to sync the, uh, the visual with the when audio. you're looking at the waveform. Instead of trying talking. to find somebody's like lips when right. they say a certain thing. Right. Well, um, just a uh, shameless uh, promotion here. We never promote anything on this podcast, but Patrick no. has a uh, a book coming out. I do. Your first. I do. Uh, can you tell us about it? 19 yeah. Ways of Looking at Consciousness. I, I read it, and it's hard for me to read books these days because I think the phones make, such, make me have such adult onset ADD. Right. But I read it with, I was enthralled throughout. Right. It wasn't hard. It was fascinating. You got a we got you got a review that critiqued it for being too philosophical. Yeah, but that doesn't. <laughs> we ignore that. And and I'm also like I'm not a person who reads reviews, even though I said that. I'm trying to affect a certain personality, you know, from uh, like the late stage of my career where I can say during an interview that I don't care about reviews. But of course, I read them. Um, yeah, I guess for your for your Instagram friends, what did I? I made like a 50,000 word story. Is that how you say it? Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. I don't know how many words you can fit in a single little story. Can you do that? Can you make like a really small font? Yeah, and you can also, the story is as many, as uh, many as slides want. as you want. Oh. So like so I, I just put a... the whole Supreme Court uh, uh, amicus brief that oh. the Onion did, <clears throat> which was so brilliant. 17 pages of legal document I put on my Instagram story. So I think oh, yeah. the medium like encourages superficiality but it doesn't uh necessitate it so i could give you like a pdf with all 300 pages and you could just put it as a story yep fascinating yep. uh yeah so um it's what is it it's a 19 ways of looking at consciousness no subtitle the only possible subtitle was going to be not in the la way um but the publisher struck that um it's so it's it's basically like my position is simply that uh, we haven't solved anything. Neuroscience hasn't solved very much. We don't know what consciousness is. And that if you were to do something like, uh, say, make a survey of theories of gravity in like 1400 or 1000 AD, you would have multiple different theories. None of them are right yet because we haven't had Galileo. We haven't had Newton. We don't know that all these different observations are actually the same thing. There's no unifying theory. And so I think that's basically where we are with neuroscience and with a theory of consciousness. There are some very good kind of suspects, but but really, truly, if you pin down some of these like scientists and some of these thinkers, no one really, truly believes that even their elaborate theory is the way, is the correct answer and exclusively the correct answer. So, so what I did was like, try to kind of like ghost write 19 different ways, uh, 19 different theories and explain like one single moment from 19 different perspectives. Uh, it's based on this old, there's this old um, book, 19 ways of looking at Wang Wei, which is, uh, I th I've, I've mentioned this uh, on the podcast before, but it's like 19 different translations of a single poem. And I've always thought that was really beautiful because it doesn't, it like much like just, inner subjectivity and and what it's like to be anything in this world like there's no one way to do it you know it's it's everyone's different people literally see different things when you're looking at the same thing depending on I don't know, what if you have like different color receptors w women have i think four color receptors in their eyes and their retinas whereas men have three there's like so we literally see color probably very differently from women um yeah, not always um but yeah, probably at some at some like kind of edge case threshold. But I can't help no. ask and wonder um, if if there was such a, a a book on gravity and in the year a thousand and they wrote nineteen ways of looking at gravity, would they have gotten anywhere closer to right? So so I <laughs> my goal, if it could be you know air quotes for people listening on the on the radio, um, uh, is basically just to take someone there's some teenager out there some like undergrad uh who's brilliantly doing whatever he or she is doing and she's in some statistics statistics class right now like maybe going into like oil surveying that's her goal or maybe she's going to do climate change or something um and 
my goal is to like redirect some people, some brilliant people in the next generation of thinkers and the next generation of academics and scientists uh, so that one of them figures it out. Like, I don't think it's me. We're all, we're all old. We're all, the old guard is dying off. You know, there aren't that many young people writing books about consciousness. That said, you're the youngest, you said, uh, person who's writing an academic, academically about consciousness yeah, well, right now. I, I, I mean, you're on the fence between be, the young and the old. Maybe. Yeah. I'm somewhere in like kind of the next generation of thinkers. If you look at a lot of these podcasts or just kind of places where the people who have the theories, it tends to be professors who have tenure. It's you, you study consciousness when you get tenure, right? Like yeah, it's, well, it's it used to not be, it used to not be taken seriously. Even when I was in college yeah. in the nineties, um, the famous philosopher, John Searle, who was one of my professors at Berkeley said, it's okay to think or talk about consciousness, but get tenure first. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and so that, that actually, interestingly, that creates an age, uh, range. It creates an age limiter, right? Um, you know, imagine, I guess the equivalent would be like if there were some profession or some way of thinking out there that you weren't really allowed to start until you were 40 or 50, right? That's kind of what the academic um, uh, push against consciousness research has done. What was so it about saying, it that just, just because it was so hard to say anything meaningful about it? Um, partly that and partly because it's, it's not very falsifiable. So one of the standard criteria in science, you want to look for science that is falsifiable, which means you have a theory that your data can that 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 you could come up with a scenario where a set of data would disconfirm it that's the most powerful thing you can do you don't prove things in science you disprove them uh, kind of serially and rapidly mm -hmm. um and like what the hell are you going to do how are you going to disprove subjectivity like it's it's or or whatever the hell's going on on the inside of everyone's head and 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 you know, we use like language and our tools are barbaric uh i mean language is a terrible translator it's good it's okay it's functional, but it's fundamentally like a highly compressed and often uh, so, com you know how like you can take like a JPEG and if you, or just a picture, like a raw picture, uh, and then you just compress it enough. And at some point it'll cross the threshold where it's indecipherable. You can't tell what's going on. You know, language is like a, like a JPEG for what's actually going on on the insides of our heads. We, 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 we confront this all the time when we're in dialogue with other people or in relationships or just like trying to get across what's going on on the inside of our head. Mm -hmm. Language doesn't do it all. We need other things like music and art and all kinds of other stuff. Um, and so, so this book is really my response to like my frustrations at that where nobody rather the way that I perceive it is that very few people seem to embrace the fact that consciousness research is a translation problem fundamentally. And so in the same way that 19 ways of looking at Wang Wei just kind of put, gave us like un, uncritical views of 19 different translations of the same poem, uh, I thought maybe I'll just take one moment, like my favorite moment that I've heard about in neuroscience and then just describe it 19 different ways. Do you want to say what that moment is? Uh, the moment is there's a, a surgeon, a neurosurgeon in LA, Itzhak Fried, and he had a patient, a teenage girl, who had epilepsy and when you have epilepsy you um uh some epilepsy it's obvious where the seizures start just based on the behavioral change but when it's kind of drug resistant and untreatable and you don't really know what to do they actually do this wild thing which is um drill holes in the person's skull and implant electrodes and then those electrodes act kind of like seismic detectors for the seizure and the person waits in the hospital until they have a seizure literally like like with these electrodes sticking out of their head and their brain activity recorded on like a screen behind them they wait because seizures you can't you can't control them you don't know when they're going to happen so you pray and hope that they have one while they're in this state um and kind of interesting well i thought this was kind of interesting as someone who doesn't sleep well and drinks a lot of alcohol the two ways to induce a seizure in the hospital are to give them alcohol and sleep deprive them that's how you get someone to have a seizure who's prone to them and this woman, uh, this girl, this teenage girl, while she had these electrodes in, they kind of consent and agree to do some neuroscience experiments because it's like having a, it's like having the web telescope in someone's brain, right? Like the new fancy telescope to look mm -hmm. out in the stars. It's like that, but they're having it inside uh, just a, a person's head. And they did this thing, they were stimulating around because uh, these things don't just listen, they, they stimulate. It would be kind of like if the web telescope could also 
like create a black hole if it wanted and then study the effect of the black hole um i'll work on that analogy a little bit more because then then the telescope would destroy itself but anyway um it could uh, create some other things besides yeah maybe a star yeah <laughs> something pretty <laughs> and non-destructive um and she ended up laughing and she laughed and then the people the operating team asked her like why did you laugh they stimulated a part of her brain they stimulated a part of her brain and she laughed mm -hmm. and she said uh well you guys are just standing around there all funny and then they did it again and they were like well the doctor just told a joke and then again and she was like well the fork that i'm holding is really funny and so each time it was this fascinating thing where i, I think there are a few things going on there one did she know they were stimulating a part of her brain no no oh, you wow. can't feel it so wow. so she doesn't know it's that's the control condition right like she doesn't actually know when the stimulation is happening but the doctors do of course kind of like your clap right it's yeah. how you synchronize yeah, they yeah. Can synchronize the behavior to the uh there now you have to keep it in you can't edit it out <laughs> sorry <laughs> mama ruspoli <laughs> um <laughs> uh and and she felt the she reported that not only did she laugh which is just like laughter is you just shake your throat you 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 know uh, activate the muscles in your throat you know repeated in stereotyped way that's just all laughter yeah. is and so it's a mus it's a muscular movement uh like speech you know, like anything else really and um she said she also felt joy and mirth alongside of it so there's this really fascinating thing which is like you you had the basic neuroscience stuff which is just the electrical activation of the muscles but then you also had the subjective feeling of joy and mirth mm -hmm. and you had her confat her brain confabulating using this jpeg compression of language like you had it confabulating uh all these reasons which were false like the fork is funny and the doctor told a joke and all these things Don't so you go ahead. i just so but i basically just tell that moment 19 different ways like if you believe in you know theory x how, how do you describe that moment if you believe in theory y how do you describe that moment isn't it Somewhere. weird that, that, that the brain, as, insofar as, as far as we can tell, is the seat of consciousness, but in a way it's not conscious? Like the fact that it has no, it feels no pain. It feels no pain, it yeah, doesn't, it's bizarre. It's in the dark, <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't experience anything and yet it experiences everything. But, but I always think about the fact that when I feel pain in my hand, I don't feel it in my brain, I feel it in my hand. Right. So does that say anything about how consciousness works that it doesn't, that it, in this super complex you know object that we call the brain there's no actual stuff that you feel in there i mean i think it's wild that the brain does not itself feel pain i mean mo most of our organs don't maybe i don't know if that's yeah. actually true but um does it feel uh, anything though like when you're sad is it your brain that's feeling the sadness or is it i mean so that that's a fascinating question right which is like okay you your your pain must be localized right right so which is kind of interesting to think about right like you're pain physical pain has to have a body part to like attach to it has to be from a spot right but then we do actually feel things like existential pain or depression or sadness and things like that but they don't really feel attached to like a single spot in the body right it kind of they could even be attached to the world yeah yeah absolutely they could be attached to the world maybe i mean that's where all these like that's where poetry comes from i think <laughs> i often think about this because as if we're able to achieve some sort of artificial consciousness it seems like it's probably going to depend on some system that is far away from wherever it's like expressing that consciousness right it's not going to be it's going to be some data center right that is like feeding right. this this right. like networked brain and might be very far away from whatever robot is like manifesting this uh well but like conscious behavior well but okay let's imagine like in tokyo there's a data center and that's the center of agi and its fingers and tentacles are like going to all the bidet every bidet in japanese hotels <laughs> you know like that's the Good choice the, <laughs> the tip of the fingertip um <laughs> and that's where it would feel pain i guess yeah. i i sincerely hope not um so anyway, anyway I, I think this is a really great it's a really great read it's very um it doesn't require technical knowledge and yet as a uh a philosopher i think it delighted me and as a scientist i i imagine it would delight the scientist you kind of straddle that between yeah. that space between storytelling like narrative and philosophy and science in a really great way and um i just can personally highly recommend this book uh to Thanks. all of our uh, <laughs> all of our beloved listeners and watchers much. yeah but wait you That's wanted to talk scary. about something else you've been thinking about 
I've been thinking about some things too. Yeah. I I um I I went to uh see Roger Waters in concert in uh in Las Vegas the other day. Great. And it was like one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my life. Um the ironically the other great concert I went to I was was also Pink Floyd and I was 14. I don't know. Did I tell this story when we were in Venice? I don't think so. I don't have a memory. I don't. <laughs> I don't either. If I apologize if I did, but I, I I thought about it the other day as I went to see that the, these two great concert experiences of my life have been uh, bookmarked by these uh, by this band. Um, when I was fourteen, they decided to play in a stage that they built floating on Piazza Sam, uh, in front of Piazza San Marco in Venice, like hundreds of yards out in the water. And they just decided to give a free concert and they announced it, the date, and a million people showed up in Venice. That's incredible. A million. Like the entire city they were worried was going to like sink a little more <laughs> because like every street was packed. The entire Piazza San Marco was like literally like as far as you could mm. see people like camping out on the ground and just like you couldn't walk. And I was 13 and my cousin Claudia brought me and my little brother up there and she saw this scene and she was like, sorry, I can't let you go out there. Yeah. And I was just like, these were like gods to me. So I was like, literally, if you were told you could meet God and then you were like, sorry, you can't. Right. Yeah. And I was just like devastated beyond belief. And we're in this hotel that's far away from everything and you can't even see the where the stage is from there. And I was just like so depressed. And we're in the lobby and through the lobby walks this like kind of ogreish old Italian politician who was like the finance minister at the time. And he had uh, been guest at my father's house once. And I heard that he had a sailboat, a giant luxurious sailboat yacht that was going to like go right in front of the stage. And I said to my cousin, I said, if, if I can convince him to let me go on this boat, would you let me? And she's like, yeah, but uh, you know, it was like, he was like, it's like, you know, if, uh, a member of the Supreme court or something. And he was also embroiled in some sex scandal or something. And I literally go up to this guy, I'm 13 years old. And I'm like, I really need to see Pink Floyd. And I, and the only way I can do it is if you let me come on your boat with you. And is there any chance? And he looked kind of astonished, but, and he was also <laughs> amused and he's like, okay, kid, yeah. you can come on the boat. Yeah. And so we sailed right up to there and it was like about 50 people on this sailboat. And I got to see Pink Floyd as like almost as close as I am to you right now. Amazing. And um, but one one of the things that you think of with Pink Floyd is that they're they're kind of an apolitical band. They were always a bit like uh, I don't know, just very palatable to a thirteen year old, let's say. Um, but Roger Waters, who left the band in like the mid eighties, was is a very political being. And this concert in Las Vegas turned out to be a very provocative um, kind of you know, slightly uh, uh, pedantic uh, expression of all of his views, which are just like kind of uh, romanticizing in the best way, resistance uh, to the patriarchy, to uh, war, um, to police brutality, to, uh, you know, just advocating for, for uh, reproductive rights and for, for uh, trans rights and for, you know, Palestinian rights and, and um, I, you know, was just really moved by it and really kind of inspired to like reminded of the responsibility of the artist to kind of use their voice to communicate what they believe in. It doesn't have to be political, but like it is like I think that when someone takes that step, but then it was really interesting that there was. You know, he pisses off some people, obviously, like I could feel people squirming next to me. A lot of these like fans of Pink Floyd are like kind of apolitical or, you know, an aging white, very American, very, I imagine a lot of Republicans, you know, are fans. And then he started out the show saying, if you're one of these people who likes Pink Floyd, but hates uh, my politics, you can fuck off to the bar. <laughs> and I, um so in a way, but then at the, anyway, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but when I, what I, what was I, there, was there like booing? I mean, was, was it the same thing as in Venice where it's just a million Pink Floyd fans or I, I imagine just a random kind of Trumpian Las Vegas right voter finding their way in there hoping. Right. But yeah. then, I mean, there must've been booing. Nobody booed. Nobody booed. They just squirmed. Fascinating. You could feel <laughs> the squirm. Okay. But what was fascinating to me was that, um, it, 
even in, amongst my like um, Instagram followers that I posted, you know, like there are people who, you know, agreed with like 90% of what he said, but disagreed vehemently with 10% of what he said and therefore were like, fuck him. Um, and it just made me, you know, watching the show made me hopeful and, and, and excited about being engaged politically. But then the reactions made me think like, my God, if you don't align with somebody a hundred percent, uh, and I was reminded of this joke, which, uh, I think was voted like funniest joke about religion of all time. And like on some like poll that was done online and it was this guy sees a, a, a guy about to jump off a bridge and he says, stop, don't do it. And he says, nobody loves me. And he says, yes, God loves you and I love you. And he says, uh, oh, are you religious? He says, yes, I am. He's like, actually, I am too. And he says, are you uh, Catholic or Christian or, or, or Protestant? Or, no, are you, are you are you Christian or something else? And he says, I'm, I'm Christian. He says, oh, me too. And he says, are you Catholic or Protestant? He says, Protestant. He says, me too. And he says, uh, Baptist or, you know, Calvinist. And he says, Baptist. He says, me too. And he says, but Baptist like conference of 1912 or of 1870. And he says, 1870. And he goes, die heretic. And he pushes him off the bridge. <laughs> and um, I think that that even on the left, there are there is this obviously that's an exaggeration and it's a joke but there's some as in everything funny it, it there's some truth in it and it, go ahead except the neurosurgeon stimulating the part of the brain that makes you laugh right exactly <laughs> <laughs> i mean so you you like humor and tell jokes a lot um do, do you do you question i mean i sometimes question why i laugh it's a weird thing like like why i prefer laugh at one thing and not another why you laugh at one thing and not another um it seems like there's a huge just variation but it, I, I life, don't know like i i just I, i've stopped trusting people's behavior now that i have no idea what's going on behind i read there. that life is a comedy to those who think and a tragedy to those who feel and since most of us do both of those things yeah. i think that we're always confronted with both humor and uh and sadness and sometimes the two are very uncomfortably hand in hand. I remember being like 10 and going to a funeral and somebody like burst out laughing and it was super inappropriate, yeah. but it's a natural response to uh, great. I think maybe it's it's a defense mechanism of some I, kind. I right? absolutely laugh when I'm most like most uncomfortable. I laugh. It's a it's a thing I can't control. And then mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, I guess jokes uh, work by subverting some expectation. Right. So you think it's going to go one way and then. It like surprises you so there's an element of surprise right because you wouldn't laugh if you knew what was going to happen maybe i don't know how to i don't know how to walk it backwards i i truly don't like i like i from that study um i don't understand then what it means to know that you laughed for a certain reason or know that you like someone for a certain reason or know that you like a, a certain movie over another movie for reason x in the same way that that girl, the, the thing that's so terrifying to me about that study was that the girl um, believed the answers she gave, right? So now here, how we, here we are giving answers to say, okay, your Instagram followers, 90% agreed, 10% disagreed, um, and therefore they, they then had an opinion, right? Um, overall, they decided to tell, tell them to fuck off or tell them to, to applaud or something, or the people that were squeamish in the in the audience it's like why is it the case that we can trust our self-report most of the time if we know based on this study that sometimes the self-report can be just like a lie we come up with like a lie our brain comes up with about why we like something or why we laughed or why we do anything i don't know it's almost like damning I mean, in the that. nature of explanation is interesting because there has to be able to be like layers of explanation that can both that can all be true right i mean you can right. you can have a a physic you know like a at some level the explanation for why something happens is probably reducible to some mathematical you know physics equation but then that doesn't also that doesn't obviate the fact that there's another explanation which is like you laughed because social cultural i said something, something. funny and then uh, or 
I don't know. I mean, like you could give a you could give a, a, a neuroscientist explanation to how you feel pain, but you can also say I'm I, I'm hurting because the um, you know because my my uh, beloved relative died or something. Right, right. And so those I, the nature of explanation is an interesting philosophical like uh, domain. But then, do you find it interesting that like most of the time when you're trying to resolve an argument or trying to resolve a conflict between two people? you resort to independent explanations. Like like if, if you were mad at me or if I was mad at you, I would ask you like to explain your behavior. Mm -hmm. And you need some aspect of that to be truth, like true or close to the truth, right? In order for us to trust each other and for me even to seek an explanation. So I, it's, it's I, I guess I just like, I don't know. I guess I've, I've almost found myself like like stuck in a corner where this 19 ways thing, this whole project that took me like six years has now made me think that there's like eight, eight billion ways or like as many ways as there are people and that we have no hope and we should just stop talking and stop explaining things to each other and stop assuming that like your version of, um, you know, that you like this painting or this kind of art or this movie and not that movie or this musician and not that musician because it's some thing that you've chosen as opposed to it being chosen for you. Yeah. It's, I, it's a similar sense that I had. Like I was so hopeful politically about being engaged. And at the same time, then I thought if people don't agree with each other on every issue, they're going to like focus on that thing that divides them um, and, and dismiss right. the entire human and what hope does that give us for people getting along if they don't, if they have to see things eye to eye on every level in order to like accept each other as human beings, right? right. It's a very difficult, uh, and then if we can't even agree on the facts that we're debating, which right. is also an issue now, right. um, we can all just maybe find a little, a little corner of the world where we can all agree with each other and, um, spend time there yeah so like to the heart of the joke and your roger waters experience like of this like it, it sounds like you came away with it thinking like okay if you 90 percent agree with someone and 10 percent disagree why does the disagree part take precedence right? right it seems like like why is it not kind of equally spread and you take and you've you realize that you're 90 percent in agreement which is an exquisite thing which you if you were doing like correlation analysis in, in science across two variables, like for a thing to be 90% yeah. correlated means it's basically like God's truth. Like that's, it is so hard to find things like that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this, I, I think it's an interesting point, which is like, why does division, why is, div, you know, pe people have described the modern social media era so many different ways about so many different reprioritizations of communication right that it's oh it's about following and liking now and oh look what that did or it's about attention grabbing and all these things but it really seems to be about increasing divisiveness yeah so people like we're all getting trained now that it's the division which is the most important thing rather than the similarity i mean i would like to be able to like somebody even that if i not had 90 percent agreement even if i had zero percent agreement right. i would imagine a world <clears throat> in which i would say like wow we disagree on everything but i love That's your kind of all, yeah your, I love your way of describing and how you got to, especially as a scientist, I feel like you should, um, it always, it always baffled me that like Dawkins was, is so upset about people being religious when I was like, how, where in your scientific view is there room for people believing anything except what they believe? I mean, there's, it has a cause, right? Like right. whatever, if you have a kind of physicalist kind of, uh, reductionist, uh, explanation for how things happen in the universe and in biology, then that's got to include people's beliefs. So right. you should just be uh, uh, intrigued and amused by the way people behave the same way you are about the way a plant grows. Right. right. To get upset about it seems kind of strange to me, right? I have a whole bookshelf at home that's that's dedicated to the kind of biology of religion, in part because I see it. So I my PhD was in mind control parasites, right? And to change someone's mind about anything is a delicate and difficult thing, especially if you do it specifically, the specific thought or specific preference. Um, and I see religion as one of the most successful mind control parasites that we've ever come up with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like, and so I, to your point, I see it that way. I frame it as an epidemiology. I frame it as like, how 
did this idea, you know, rather than it being a physical protozoan, you know, seven by one microns, it's a amorphous thing with no physical shape or body, but yet still it has effectively found its way into the minds of most of the planet and is shaping our behavior probably more than any other single thing. You probably are giving the answer that Dawkins would give to me. He'd probably say that it's, it is a physical like fact, but it's a pathology that, or it's like that needs to be cured and that he's part of the, the oh, cure. I don't, think, I don't think mind control parasites are bad. I mean, I think they're, I'm agnostic to their uh, goodness or badness. I mean, they make, they make little mice fall in love with cats. That's not a, you know, what if, <laughs> What if that's a good thing? That means the mice will be going to the pound and adopting the cutest cat, bringing them home. I mean, I think, yeah, I think all value judgment it has to sit somewhere else besides science. Like, I don't think you can good and bad don't do. Do you think they exist in the? Can you can you can you derive some sort of like uh, uh, opinion on on something's uh, moral uh, value from uh, from a scientific? Uh, I mean, I can understand how it can inform it, but not like be the source of it. I mean, language seems to be a good thing. It's created a lot, but it's also wouldn't be bullying wouldn't be possible without it. You know, like it's it's hard for me to it's, it would be hard, I think, to describe any innovation tool, technology, anything or even. And I, and I consider cognitive evolution to be part of that. Any step along the way to be universally good or bad. Like, like, I think you can find both in everything. Right. Uh, but I, but I tend to also be just a pushover. So I just kind of, I just kind of, I just kind of observe the world. I don't really have strong principled opinions about things. But so you said something earlier about, um, about kind of the phenomenology of relationships, um, that you kind of wanted to steer maybe the conversation in this direction. I feel like we're doing it accidentally, but I want to go directly there. As if I do anything accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, well, so like, um, I, let's see, maybe it's just the amount of experience I've had, um, where people that, so like friends and you go to a movie, right. And some people like them and some people don't, let's just take a very, very simple, simple, simple example. Some people like the movie, some people don't, but like these people, you know, like, and then the, the healthy debate afterwards is the, for me, the like spice of life. That's my favorite thing in the world to do is like get out of a movie and then talk about it. And it would be boring as all hell if everybody agreed. So of course the disagreement come, you know, rises to the top, but I actually like don't understand why people disagree. Like I, I actually don't get it um, on a scientific level. Um, I, I, I'm trying to understand a little bit more recently. I've been thinking and doing research on a little bit more about like, um, if a lot of the things that we think of are personality quirks or personality differences are actually, uh, or, or like critical differences, um, are actually just based on phenomenological like variants from, and, and what I mean by that is that people are literally seeing, hearing, experiencing, remembering, carving attending to different things in the world um so like one one example the thing that made me think of this is um i met someone at a consciousness conference and she was uh she she had like ringing in her ear uh, tinnitus and she was synesthetic and which means the sound caused a color like a visual color in her like mental imagination to actually appear and it wasn't just a color it was a complicated landscape and she, when all other sounds were eliminated, that's when that tinnitus kind of kicks up for everyone. I have it also. It, I can confirm this fact. When it's quietest is when the sound, the ringing of the ear is the loudest. And what was so fascinating is she said, I find it to be a beautiful place to go at the end of every day. When all the other sounds and I put my earplugs in because it means I'm alone and the and I asked her to describe what it was like on the inside of her head when she hears it. And she said, well, there's this kind of diffuse white cloud with these angled stripes. And it kind of reminds me of being underwater or flying. And so for her, it's an extraordinarily pleasant thing. For most people that have this, it's an extraordinarily negative thing. And, and it got me thinking, I remembered um, that, that there was this story from um, Vladimir Nabokov wrote 
a short story that he submitted to the New Yorker in the like 50s, 60s. And it was rejected. It's called the Vane Sisters, V-A-N-E, the, the Vane Sisters. And it's kind of like a ghost story, I think. I don't remember it. Um, uh, just a few characters, and it's a kind of uh, bit of a ghost element to it. Someone's died, maybe. Someone's still alive. And at the very end, he hid in the last paragraph an acrostic clue, which he had never done before. And I think he said can only be done, but like once in a hundred, uh, once in a thousand years in literature. Like you can't do that. You can't just hide puzzles in prose. Um, and the story was rejected. And he's Nabokov and he gets very upset about that kind of thing. And so he writes this like vicious response letter. And in the response letter, he's like, I think you didn't understand my story. There's an acrostic hidden in the last paragraph. How could you not see this? Here it is exactly. Here's how it changes the plot. Like, what the fuck? Why didn't you see it? Um, Nabokov was synesthetic. So he had grapheme color synesthesia. He did, his wife Vera did, and his son Dimitri did. Wait, what is what they had? What, what uh, did they call it? Grapheme color synesthesia. Which so, means? So that means that when you look at text, every single letter will appear colored. Okay. And I think that quite possibly the acrostic was obvious to him mm-hmm. because every he could see that he made when he was writing it and would read it, print it out and read it on the page. He saw a colored pattern in the puzzle that he was trying to make. So it popped out. It was obvious to him. He didn't know that other people aren't like this, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody really truly questions and goes around and asks everybody, what's it, what's it like on the inside of your head? So my theory as is- As if you could even explain it. As if you could explain it. And then even he, his wife, and his son had the same letter. So capital M was like violet to one of them, mauve to the other, and blue to one. Like they saw the same thing with different, uh, as different colors. And- like, you know, this, this thing, which is like the New Yorker rejects your short story, right? Is a thing that all writers go through and you, you never know why they do it. This mm-hmm. is about this question of like, why, why do you like some things and not others? Why do people agree with 90% of Roger Waters' statements and not the other 10%? Like, like why? Um, well, I mean, it's easy to think about that. Like the, 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 the consequence of believing it affects different people differently, obviously. I mean, if, if you, um, you know, I think uh, if, if you are the, you have a family member that's the victim of a violent crime, you might be more prone toward to believing that uh, in some sort of punitive uh, retributive justice. And if you've never been, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to fish an example out of a hat, but I'm thinking, I'm wondering how much of my desire to be able to like engage with and, and accept and, and even delight in somebody who like disagrees with me, how much that depends on it not really mattering what we think, what I think and what, they think right? Right, right um i'm wondering if like you know if if you have uh your brothers on death row and i'm argue that you know capital punishment is is great and it's worth even a few innocent people getting killed to get like those criminals off the street or something you might find it hard to like love me if like the consequences and then add to that, if I have power to actually change right. the situation, because often like you can, you can have disagreements and debate just in a kind of sporty way, because ultimately what each of you thinks doesn't matter. Right. Like what I think about, um, you know, Ukraine right now, it makes zero difference about what the outcome is going to be. Right? right. But if I think like, it's okay to uh, take out my uh, aggression or my disagreement with you violently. And, uh, and then the consequence of that is that if we disagree, I'm going to smash your face and you might like find it harder to, to kind of accept my uh, different point of view. Right? right. So there's almost like a causal proximity for some things like, like the taking your aggression out on me would be closer in causal relation to my health and happiness than your opinion on, on, somewhere across the world right? Right. right and then so somebody who has somebody <clears throat> who has uh, skin in the game obviously and 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 tribal alliances with certain you know people uh is gonna take it very very seriously what you think about a certain topic right. and that's fair enough i mean i i understand i'm i'm wondering to what degree this kind of 
um, I don't want to say cavalier, but like this uh, more detached attitude towards disagreements depends on a certain place where you sit where it doesn't it doesn't matter and i say that in a positive way it doesn't matter in the sense that it doesn't have huge consequences for you but then you can like someone might point to a certain like aloofness that that causes and then it's a luxury to be able to disagree and then it, because it's like a sportsmanship thing instead of an actual thing that like has a true effect on your uh on your your uh, level of uh, ability to actually exist in the world but have you ever found yourself in true opposition to everyone around you like everyone close to you on, yeah. a, on a single matter yeah. a single opinion you have yeah okay and i also find myself um wanting to see the other point of view even when i agree with people like i might agree with you on something but i but i immediately go to like well what about the people who don't agree and like what do they think and why do they think that and let me and let me like explore that a little bit and again i think there's a certain um a certain detachment's probably necessary for that and but i think i don't know if you we should like make that if we should like critique that or, or say that we shouldn't like be able to uh, adopt that detached stance too because maybe it is good to be able to engage with people who disagree with you and do you, so it's so funny i i've always seen myself Come closer again um, or, or you can pull that towards you no but i need my relaxed pose yes yeah, i'm saying you can have your relaxed pose back and then <laughs> just bring that towards you yeah um i always find myself like chameleonically agreeing no just just turn it this way I'll, I'll just step forward. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what do I, how's the coffee? How do I get coffee? Oh, no. <laughs> this is, what a solution. Um, I, I think if I found myself in violent opposition, violent figuratively, opposition to like those in my immediate group, I would just change my, I would just change my mind. Like I would just like come, actually change or pretend. That's a good question. Is a chameleon pretending when they change their skin, or are they actually changing their skin? No, they're actually changing their skin. But I do think but they're pretending. But they're, but it is their skin they're changing, right? I, I do feel like that's a f proximally how I. They do say that the best navigate. way to convince somebody of a political to, to take a different political stance is not through a bunch of facts, but to right. make them think that they're part of the same tribe as you. Right. And right. therefore, like, and, and, and focus on those things that, that make you similar. But this is what I mean by, like, I see this as no different than a mind control parasite. Like, I, I had most, so many lab meetings over the years, which are just, what is the step-by-step -step way in which the parasite gets into the brain? How does it, once it's there, affect its goal? What is its goal, actually? Because it never, there's no such thing as directly causing a mouse to like a cat. Like, we don't know what that looks like in a neuron. Like where where is uh, attraction to a cat inside of a neuron? Yeah. Right? But if it's you could talk to the mouse and you could say like, actually, the cat's a nice well, cat. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying is we humans do effectively the same thing, which is if, you know, earlier you used the example of like, well, what if your like, brother or sister or something is on death row, whatever mm -hmm. that example was, or what if you had a bad experience in childhood with a thing? Those are... F Memory is physical, right? Those are physical changes in your brain. Those are physical differences between person A and person B. And those physical differences are causing their preferences and opinions and behavior and stance on political, social, ethical things to be different. So I, I truly see it as no different than having a physical little single cell protozoan in your brain right. or versus having um, an experience or versus having a belief uh, or... Uh, uh, parents who believe thing X that you can't not believe. So since all of us have like by necessity different experiences, there's right. no world in which we're ever going to have the same. We could we could we could like have some commonalities, right. but but you're 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 you have you're you're having a pessimistic uh, valence around this uh, lately. It, it's sort of like a like I just don't know what to do with that information. Like I don't know I. I so like it has personally led me, it's kind of nice to be a lot more forgiving um, in my interpersonal relationships and uh, uh, with just with people where I don't, I just have no idea what's going on in their head when they're doing a thing or when they think a thing. 
And partly because I have now recognized that no one has any idea what's going on in mine. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to like equally and symmetrically uh, uh, give that gift to the world of like, okay, I'm going to try really hard not to judge you on this. And, but um, in part because it's like, you know, I, you were at my house when I had the, the 3D movie party, right? Mm-hmm. And some people can't see 3D. Mm-hmm. They literally can't. 15% of people can't see 3D if you they go to a movie and put their goggles on. Um, and then those people don't like 3D movies in general. Well, why don't they like the 3D movies? Is it because they thought about it? No, it's because they can't see the damn thing, right? And and you can just imagine, imagine like, um, I don't know, like I, I believe that that is true. I don't really have data for this, <laughs> but... Um, I believe that we are going to eventually discover when we're no longer in the Babylonian era of neuroscience, we will eventually discover that all of the things we thought of as most of the things we thought of as like interpersonal differences are going to come down to the fact that it's like, oh, on the inside of your head, you can't replay everything you've ever seen visually. So when you are feeling that thing about this person, it's because really you just your mental landscape is just very different. And so you're you're having what appears to be like a argument. Um, but what it fundamentally comes down to is how quickly you retrieve memories. You know, like it, these little stupid things that we build, like almost like a vision. <laughs> so you, so, so every, so you're saying like, um, when we argue, it's actually the same thing as the 3d movie. Like yes. I just not seeing the world through your eyes yes. and therefore that's why I'm getting upset or angry about what you did or what you said or something like that. Sort of. And, and I mean, yes, but I would say it's even broader than disagreement. Like it also just comes down to preferences. So this is a thing where it's like people, a lot of disagreements have to do with people's preferences on things. I like this movie. I like that movie. I like this country. I like that country. I like this moral philosophy. I like this religion, the Baptist versus Calvinist, you know, it's that kind of thing. You know, there might be one tiny thing that separates baptism. What is it called? Baptist? No, yeah, Baptist. Baptist. From Baptistism? <laughs> ba- ba- Southern Baptistism? Baptist from Calvinism. And it could be based on, you know, what if like 90% of, I mean, this is a completely ridiculous example, but like what if 90% of Baptists are colorblind? And there's something right. about it in there that just helps them have a shared opinion on a thing. And that is actually what separates them out from the from the Calvinists. Um, I, I just like in the absence of information about how different our brains are, I think we I personally think we need to take more of a forgiving stance yeah. when someone disagrees or you're really confused by someone's behavior. But of course, my ability to take a forgiving stance is probably dependent on some, you know, basic chemical yeah, thing too. So <laughs> this is, goes back to what I was saying about Dawkins. Like, it seems, even when I listen to Sapolsky talk about like, oh, we should be more forgiving because free will doesn't exist. I'm like, in what world is there a choice for us to be more forgiving? And and why are you trying Shit. to convince me that there's no free will? Like yeah. when I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe based on a whole bunch of other stuff that we don't have any control over. Oh, no. Am I aging into Sapolskyism? I might be aging into it. No, but there you see there's like, a, there seems to be a fundamental contradiction there between saying yeah. like, this is the truth and therefore we should believe this and let me try and convince you of it. And then, but then I guess the answer to that is you're saying, okay, I'm accepting that my place in this like causal like uh, network is to be the influence on you to change your mind about X thing. And then I'm not saying that you have a choice. I'm just saying that I've shown up for whatever reason to try and be one element in that equation. Right. Right. But yeah, this we're diving into like deep murky waters of, uh, of free will versus determinism. Well, but like you went to a concert, there were 80,000 people there. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. 160, let's say 50. Um, did any of those people change their mind on anything? That's what I wonder. On I, a single position. I changed my mind. On what? On, on... I changed my mind, but I was, uh, it, it, it reinforced. I think I changed my mind towards reinforcement, which is what happens. Like I hear if you, if. Um, like pre-existing beliefs or beliefs that you had 
kind of I already believe stuff, about. but I thought I, I, but maybe I didn't think of them as this quite so important. And then the fa his passion made me think like, oh no, like it's really important that we engage with the world in a political way. Just say, let's take that as yeah. a, instead of the contents of what he was saying, let's just say like the artist as passionate political provocateur and activist. It made me think like, this is great. Like, even if, again, this is my, my personality is like, to, even when I disagree, I want to like find the good in the person. So like, I thought like, even if I didn't agree with you on certain things, I really admire the fact that you're taking a stance. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, um, and that you're using your platform to try and like make a difference in the world and what you think of as important and crucial. Right. And that he, I saw him as like, a, a passionate angry but peace-loving human and that he's trying to make the world a better place and i thought i gotta go do the same thing like we can't waste time mm. and in with superficialities and we should like and it doesn't mean that when i do it it's going to be about politics right. that happens to be his thing you know it's like david lynch when he talks about ideas and fishing and he says i'm interested in a certain type of fish because he says ideas are like fishing and he says you got to find these big fish that you have to go deep for and he says now i'm interested in a certain type of idea which which is for cinema, but there's all kinds of fish. There's fish for businessmen and there's fish for, uh, you know, uh, Ooh, like sports and there's, that. uh, it's, it's wonderful. So like, I don't think that you need to like engage politically. That happens to be what fires him up. Right. Yeah. Now I might be, we might be fired up by philosophy or science right. or, uh, that's a, he, Lynch's point is a charitable one, right. Which is saying like, Hey, my mind does this thing, but other people's minds, let's not, judge them for being CEO of a thing because maybe they're after a different kind of idea. Game, you know? Yeah. And he says, you know, we're all like looking for ideas. And he says, there's this great giant, you know, what the, the ocean of where these fish live is like consciousness or, or, or the unconscious, I think. I don't remember which metaphor he uses more, but like basically he loves meditation because that's when you, that's how you fish. You go, you go into this deeper place of collective unconscious probably. And, and, uh, and there these uh, amazing ideas are swimming around and you've got to try and latch on to one of them. And then he yeah. says, the great thing is that when you get a good one, people will give you money <laughs> to make them real, right? right they go right. from being an abstraction to being a reality. And that's our role is to kind of do that, right? So in what way was the Waters concert different from a super church? Yeah, that it also made me see the similar. Again, I'm looking for similarities um, rather than looking for differences. Oh, I did think about this. Um, I so yeah, no, I think they're not that different in the sense that um, there's a lot of the morality that he's right. interested in, and morality can be divisive, right. and it's trying to bring people on to his team in right. a way. And then you're trying to universalize it. You're trying to say like, actually this would be, the world would be better if everybody like thought like this, you know? Right. But so, and I'm thinking not just about the kind of intellectual aspects of it, but also just like the physical and sensor, sensorial aspects, like. Sensory. Sensory, I think. <laughs> I, I often make things more complicated than they need to be. <laughs> um, like stage, preacher, loud, yeah. Tens of thousands of people who agree in synchrony, you know, yeah. you, you said yeah. using are, emotion, using emotion, but also using like in-group fealty, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody was booing. The people were uncomfortable, but they were together. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 Radicalization is probably too far, but like, you know, evangelizing. Yeah. Um, moral philosophy. Every single religion is a fundamentally a moral philosophy. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, do you, but do you, do you look differently on super church events? Have you ever been to a super church? You know, like, like why would you musical? They're both musical. They both have audiovisual spectacular. They're both cost a lot of money to attend. You know, like you're donating to Roger Waters is like coffers. Yep. Um, so like, what's the difference? I mean, I guess the difference is that I disagree with the church, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the other team, right? But yeah, no, there is, I mean, there is, there is a, a, a now the the wave of like kind of really uh, ideological atheists, for example, uh, you know, like Sam Harrison, Dan, Dan, and all these people. There, there's actually a new wave of 
uh, atheists to recognize that maybe some of these religious practices are really good for you? Like, it seems like people who are religious, like live longer, they have sense of community. They have like these, these times when they get together and sing are actually really like healthy for yeah, the body and the course. mind and it's community. And we so now, now people shit. are like, they're starting, concert. there's yeah, a religion, a there's a church for atheists in, in, uh, in uh, London that was like and where like people can get together and sing and and meet people of their community and do all of these things and then there's a lot of practices that we bring in as uh non-believers that we're rec we recognize i thought about this with going to burning man we haven't talked about that but like that was like a pilgrimage and full of like um you know, full of like religious qualities as well in terms of like the, I think of like drug taking as a sacrament. Um, I, I don't know how different it is to like the body, you know, the, you're taking the body of Christ right. and with the wine uh, and when you're drinking uh, all the things that we drank that I was. <laughs> This old, turn, turn off Tao's mom. Okay, now turn off the show. Um, yeah, you know, there's an old uh, The Wicker Man, that movie, 70s movie, I mm -hmm. think, the Scottish movie. I mean, these are rituals. These are rituals with a long, long religious history, right? Yeah. Like burning a thing. So, yeah, I think there, there was, uh, I was listening to a talk about like uh, uh, religious for religion, like the aspects of religion that maybe we should try and hold on to, even if you don't believe. Mm -hmm. And it was like, um, gratitude, uh, community, ritual, pilgrimage, um, you know, just the, the, the fact that when we eat together, which goes back to what we're talking about explanation, like we can, we can eat together because we need calories, but that doesn't mean that we can't also eat together because we want to like break bread together and all of the layers of meaning of that, that right. go way beyond the calories and the bread, right. like the sense of, of brotherhood we feel after we've eaten and the sense of gratitude we have for like something outside of us and the sense of like, so like, you know, even saying, uh, I was at a dinner recently and someone was talking about the beauty of people saying grace and we decided, uh, why don't we all hold hands and say thank you for this meal to nothing in particular, but just thank you. Right. And it right. was a beautiful moment. And I've, when I've gone to houses of religious friends and they do this, I do always kind of, envy it and recognize its beauty and yeah. and then my friend mark rathel who i've always wanted to have on the podcast and we will one day but he's religious and he says that belief has nothing to do with it like he thinks i was like how can you believe this stuff like you're so educated and he's like i don't think of i don't prioritize or privilege belief i think i'm more interested in the practices that mm -hmm. uh, surround it and the meaning that they give to my life like the philosophy the moral philosophy of it right no, I think I think he would go. That's that also as sounds a, too, too detached. Okay. No, it sounds too abstracted. Mm. Whereas I think a, a, as a kind of Heideggerian, he thinks it's a, it's a, a embodied uh, practice that you already the moral philosophy sounds like something you could make explicit. Whereas I think that you that the the idea and I'll ask him when I finally get him on the podcast. But the idea is that you have uh, the 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 moral philosophy insofar as it exists is embodied in a way that's deeper than language probably hmm. i mean do you think do you think the kind of spirituality component to los angeles right it's everywhere do you think that's a kind of new version or an old version or an evolved version or you know like well so what i wanted to ask was um like in your close or however you define your own social circles like how many, what percentage do you think believe in God? What percentage of the people that you consider and call good friends? Very few, I would say. Yeah. Like, Unless in the most abstract way, like, Well, you that's know. where I'm wondering where people were. And I was even thinking like people that listen to this podcast, past, present, future, you know, like how many of them would we guess are believers? In, I would say few. But then I would also... Uh, as I went through kind of the rehearsal of that question and your answer in my head, um, I was thinking that a lot of people would say like, there's, there's a huge amount of spirituality in this city mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. What does that mean to you? Uh, uh, I mean, to me personally, or to no, uh, when you say the word spirituality, what do you mean? I mean, a, a poor understanding of cause and effect, but <laughs> uh, wrapped in all kinds <laughs> Uh, wrapped in a uh, with a nice little blanket of social comfort. Uh, okay. <laughs> Tell us what you really think. <laughs> I mean, blankets are uh, um, 
totemic <laughs> objects have comforted all in all cultures. So I don't I don't mind a good cognitive um, uh, blanket comfort blanket, uh, but it's true. I mean, it infuses a lot of this town, um, and so so I, I just wonder if it's actually more similar to belief in a god than we're realizing. I'm going to push back a little and say that maybe this spirituality though isn't uh, defined by a, a cause a lack of understanding of cause and effect, and I think that maybe it it exists in a world where cause and effect don't matter. Um, yeah. It's like, Which I would call a porn. Yes, go on. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I did, like I said, like a, a lot of my, my view on this, my kind of dismissive, my, my knee jerk dismissiveness about this is constantly in my head being kind of resisted by the fact that like one of the most intelligent pers- people I know as embraced like religious practices and there's no world in which you could say it's like, uh, in virtue of his ignorance. Right. Um, so I start to wonder like, and then, and then I actually see more open-mindedness from him in our, uh, you know, when witnessing our way of life than I do from people in our so-called open-minded group true. when they hear about somebody being religious, they're very kind of prejudiced against it, That's which true. I find fascinating. He would attend our libertine uh, uh, parties <laughs> like, you know, like Bombay Beach, et cetera, yeah. but not very we've few. Never gone to church yeah, we've never gone to church with him. Right. Exactly. So, um, so I like, I think that, I think that maybe these practices um, uh, fill some sort of necessary human need that is not necessarily ignorant of uh, like a more scientific worldview, but just exists in a different domain. And, um, you know, again, like maybe we can't reduce uh, the explanation of why we like to eat together to some sort of like uh, reductive scientific explanation of it. Or if it does, it misses the point. And so maybe like sitting down and analyzing why we why we're eating and giving that scientific quote unquote like explanation of it would cause you not to sit down and eat together because you could say I could just get my calories on my own right right um, and so it's like a or if if you get yeah, if you gave like a neuro you know a neuroscientific explanation of uh, why we have sex or eat or anything like that, you'd be missing 90% of what makes it so meaningful. And that's not, a, I don't think that's an illusion. I think that's a, just a different domain of human, of human existence. But maybe that makes me one of these like weird LA. So the, the I violently, people. I violently disagree with you and that's okay. No, do you though? <laughs> no, I don't know. I just thought it would be a good way no. to end. <laughs> No, I think I think well, the the thing in common I think is magical thinking. That's the thing that I think um, underlies a bit of religion and and a lot of the spirituality. I was I was thinking about a little more elaborate answer. And in politics, which, do we have that too? Does it require magical thinking? There's no way to describe American politics, probably world global politics, that does not use religion and belief system as the number one driver of difference and in in the world, in the hist right. Like you could. It explains everything. <laughs> I mean, like it. Well, in a, there's a statistical analysis called principal component analysis, where like you have a confusing mess of data and observation, and you want to find the single variable which most explains the variance, most explains the differences. And I believe that if you take human history and you did, ran a PCA on it to try to predict the most and explain the most, um, religion is the number one PCA. It's the thing that explains Ukraine right now. It's a holy, it's a holy war, right? The Russian Orthodox Church has called it a holy war. If you look at the Middle East, if you look at every, I think that might be a post facto like a rationalization. But what's actually sure. happening again? If you give a, if we talk to Aaron, I'm sure he'd talk about like the, uh, uh, you know, there's there's resources that they're fighting for. Right. You know, Russia wants to have a. Uh, a monopoly on certain, you know, uh, there's 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 food you know there's 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 agriculture there's oil there's 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 it's a it's a through that, line that's and then you can give the the religion grows around that to give a justification for what's actually probably right. a more material uh concern so the power of that analysis the pca 
analysis is that one takes for granted that the world is complex, that there are a lot of variables that could explain this, but it's the one thing that most does. And I'm not, you know, maybe that was a bad example, but I mean, our country is the, the, the division, the politics, the, I mean, we're, we're spiraling down into the garbage disposal of a kind of internal holy civil war yeah. here right now. So like, it's the thing. I think what I would want to like come take away from our conversation though today is that I hope that you can have multiple layers of explanation that don't like that maybe just even actually not only don't contradict each other, but maybe complement each other. Sure. And, and, and they, and it's life is wonderfully rich and complicated. I can, I can be uh, expressing the contents of what I'm saying. And at the same time, you, I could be motivated by a desire to convince you, a desire to impress you, a desire to impress our audience, a desire to be loved. Um, there's like, that doesn't mean I don't also believe in the content of what I'm saying. And that doesn't mean I'm also, we're not rushing to finish because we want to go get something to eat. Uh, I don't know. Just all of these layers of explanation can complement and coexist. Are we going to give secular grace on our dinner tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Nah. Nah. Okay. I'm always so amazed when these podcasters go like three, four hours because I find it really like uh, physically taxing oh, to yeah. sit here and burns up calories. Right, the most exercise I've done in weeks. <laughs> okay, so on that we note, we got oh, we're, we're still recording. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm gonna stop right now. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Patrick. Oh, buy the book. Um, Nineteen ways of looking at consciousness by Patrick. October eleventh. October eleventh. It comes out. Uh, is there anything you want to say to people about like like helping to uh, promote it besides buying it or coming to anything or listening to anything or uh the most useful thing is um like if you walk by a bookstore just go in and ask if they have it because if they don't have it then they'll order it really usually yeah that kind of thing is super helpful and that's something that can only be done like in a grassroots way oh i'm gonna end on a joke uh one of my favorites this this young man goes into a bookstore he's very nervous and he goes to the the, the information desk and uh he says to the woman he's like i i'm looking for this new book I, I, it's uh i don't know what it's called but it's about living with a very small penis and uh she looks in the computer and she says i'm not sure if it's in yet and he goes that's the one (laughs) really hard to get patrick to laugh (laughs) (laughs) but i don't know why i laughed (laughs) (laughs) goodbye